we're in 23 now, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I, I know, but I keep on forgetting what the number is. Hello, welcome to episode 23 of the Defen Podcast. Uh, we have a mega special superstar guest on the show today. Um, VJ, That's introduce me. yourself. Yay. <laughs> welcome, VJ. No, shut up. We, we have Mr. Stuart Holloway. Hello, Stuart. Hi, VJ. Hi, Ray. Hi. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's absolutely absolutely pleasure. Uh, it's great, uh, Stuart. Yeah. You tweeted in 2016, Stuart, that you left your iPhone uh, stopwatch running, and then you felt guilty. So uh, I did this myself recently. I did a bike ride, and I finished the bike ride and left my stopwatch running for another 10 minutes, and I felt guilty as well. So maybe you have to think about what, or talk about, or admit what makes us feel guilty now. You know, how about you, VJ? Um, actually, I'm not, uh, okay. Maybe I, I was feeling guilty because I stopped saying fuck and which I just <laughs> did again, I think. Uh, Is that why you stopped feeling guilty? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> think about that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I need to contemplate it again, but, um, are, are we sure we're, okay. We're going to start with what, what, um, the guilty stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll think about it because there are a lot of things. I don't want to reveal it in the public, uh, you know, forum but we'll see okay maybe we'll put that in some outtakes afterwards yeah <laughs> i think i think i've got some video evidence of you in a russian hotel and i'm gonna hold it against you oh <laughs> yeah. uh, you know coming from the united states i can tell you that never works <laughs> you think that's going to work but it never does Oh, Jesus Christ. It it seems like, actually, it seems like like guilt used to be something that we had, and we're in a post-Trump era, and guilt is just completely finished. Um, You know, just like everything, shame and guilt is, we're just finished with that now. All human guilt and shame is finished. I said it could escalate quickly, Stuart. Um, I'm sorry, (laughs) but you you started it. No, it's my fault. And, I, you know, I actually don't think that. Before I started my life as a software developer, I was working on a PhD in history. And I, I take a much more long view, cyclical view on these things. And, you know, every generation as we age through our lives, you see these things happening. And you're like, oh, this is really terrible. And then, you know, your generation finishes up its time carrying the torch and it keeps getting carried. So you know, I'm reasonably optimistic as a person in general. Uh, and I'm optimistic uh, about politics in the United States, even uh, even though there's a lot of crazy stuff going on right now. Yeah, actually, um, mm. since we're getting onto a slightly serious subject, uh, talking about history PhDs, I was listening to this uh, audio book by Timothy Snide, um, who, uh, if you're a historian, you might know about. Um, he wrote a book called On Tyranny, which is all about the kind of markers for tyrannical regimes. Um, and he was basing it on 20th century regimes like Stalin and Hitler. And he was actually saying that, regardless of uh, your optimism, he's saying that there are some quite considerable markers at this moment in the US that, that, that may, may uh, signify a move towards a tyrannical regime. So... Yeah, you know, I think that I think that's out there, but I think that we also uh, live in the age of the internet, and we have an ability to communicate as a global, uh, a set of global citizens uh, to laugh at nationalist level stupidity where it's happening. 
uh, that did not exist before. And I think that a super chilling thing would be, you know, successful internet censorship, uh, nation to nation right. among nations that are thought of having reasonably free speech and free press. Uh, but when that's not happening, I think that it is a great counterbalance to local silliness. Yeah, we do have a lot of that um, coming up now, don't we, with uh, various governments, say the tech companies, they should um, open up their encryption backdoors and stuff like this uh, to allow this kind of government censorship and activity. So there are some, yeah, there are some threats out there for sure, um, even to the internet. Yeah, this was meant to be in a, a light-hearted introduction, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great start. Right, Vijay, sort us out. Come on. Yes, I'm trying to keep my political uh, I don't know, thoughts for myself. Uh, but anyway, but uh, I, I think that we have enough discussion about tyranny and other things. So we can just get back to whatever the fun things that are happening in the closure world. And we have, well, can we call you like second in command? Or I mean, how, how does it work in, in closure for you? Like um, Rich says, call me great leader and you're supreme leader. Or how does this work? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think I think Rich is pretty clearly uh, the BDFL for as long as he wants to do that, and I'm hopeful he'll want to do yeah. it for you know a bit longer at least, as I think he does a very good yeah. job, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then there are you know other people who take on different roles. I mean, the person who probably spends the most hours in the week, probably more hours than there are to be awake, worrying about this stuff. Uh, in addition to Rich is Alex Miller, of course. You guys have yeah. uh, spoken yeah. to him uh, before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, my role is uh, I'm a committer on closure and mm. uh, and I read every line of code that goes in. So I don't think there's a particular name for that. Um, uh, I would like I would like to say that's a careful committer who doesn't ever make mistakes, but um, that also means that everything <laughs> that goes in that's not as good as it could be, um, it's at least partially my fault. Uh, but it's been quite an interesting role and I've been doing that for at least, I can't remember when I started doing that, at least probably since 1-2. So through a lot of major yeah. releases, you know, reading all of the uh, lines of code that go in. Yeah. So am I making up the history if I if I remember? Maybe I remember it from from some of the discussions, or I, I don't exactly remember uh, where I heard. Maybe it was my imagination. But uh, so you met with Rich when he was presenting at the JVM Languages Summit, and then that's how it, it all started, right? Because you're doing Ruby at that time. So that is pretty close. That is pretty close to right. So I was, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Justin Gatland and I had created uh, Relevance in 2003, and yeah. uh, and we had taken our company and switched it from uh, primarily enterprise Java to primarily Ruby on Rails, and we had made that switch fairly early uh, in 2005. Mm -hmm. And we made that switch because Justin wrote a blog post about productivity in Ruby and got slash dotted and we were serving our own blog and our server melted. Um, <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> good old times. <laughs> fortunately, our server was not itself software we wrote, so we were able to wave that off a little bit. But you know, after having in my career made three or four language switches that were dictated by um, employment situations, and then one language switch to Ruby, that was was chosen, but was mostly chosen from a set of outside influences, right? I got to know uh, pragmatic Dave Thomas, uh, traveling mm -hmm. around and speaking at conferences in the United States, and uh, James Duncan Davidson and other people who were uh, Ruby enthusiasts to varying degrees. Uh, I decided that it was important uh, at the level that I wanted to reach as a software developer to do a more systematic search. And so my interest in closure 
grew out of a systematic search. It was called at the time the search for java.next. And so trying yeah, to find, right. you know, the next thing there. And so I discovered Clojure, and it must have been, it probably was about a year before that JVM Language Summit. So I oh. started writing a book about Clojure. I decided that this was the thing. And I started writing a book, which ended up being the first published book on Clojure. And then... Yeah, that's from uh, Pragmatic Programmers, right? The Swan, Swan That's book. right. And Alex Miller is yeah, currently yeah. Um, just started the third edition. So I think the electronic oh, alphas of the third edition of that book are just coming out right now. And Perfect. so I was working on the book. And then because of my interest in Clojure, Brian Getz um, said, you ought to come to the JVM Language Summit. So I did and uh, met Rich there and... And I'm like, hey, I'm the guy that's writing the book about your language. And he's like, hey, I'm the guy that wrote the language. And, you know, we started talking and, and we hit it off. And I said, you know, I would love to have, you know, any kind of feedback you would provide on the book. And he said, it's so awesome to have a book, you know, that we can release essentially contemporaneously with Going 1.0. So we were able to coordinate that and release the book, you know, along with uh, Closure Going 1.0. So that was a great you know, I think a great beginning. And if you look at the history of other programming languages, you know, they had to wait, you know, often years, uh, you know, before a book to get a book. To get yeah. a book. So, so it was a good start. Yeah, I think there are there are I think a couple of um, most important questions because usually when people listen to the podcast, you know, they want to have the you know immediate uh, TLDR sort of thing. So, first of all, are you a vegetarian? So I spent about three years uh, being a vegetarian when I was in my twenties. And my 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 primary <laughs> reasoning for being a vegetarian was environmental, uh, and mm -hmm. I continue to care about those issues. Uh, but I also think it's important to uh, to be an effective leader and persuader. So I persuaded two other people to become vegetarian uh, by oh. without without like pushing them. It wasn't an evangelism thing. It was you know I explained why I was doing it. And they have both. So you mean something like um, my way or highway? No, no. I just you know, uh, I just said why I was doing it, and then these two people became vegetarians, and they have both remained vegetarians for life. So I feel like I don't have to anymore since they have it covered. Oh man! <laughs> so, two in, one out. <laughs> they've covered so, your. They've covered so, your bets. <laughs> So there is net effect still one vegetarian, one yeah. one more vegetarian in yes, the world. Yes, we have. Okay. I, I feel like my life contribution is one net vegetarian in the world. So, <laughs> so that's that's pretty good. Um, and and my family, you know, we enjoy vegetarian cooking, and so you know we do eat a fair amount of uh, vegetarian food. But but no, vegetarian uh, if I had to choose. But there was there was a question actually from somebody on uh, on Slack, uh, Sean Mahood. Beef saying, jerky. You had vegetarian beef jerky. What what is that? That, that that's very bizarre. So I have this example when I'm introducing Datomic's query language. Oh right, that is about <laughs> it's about a it's about a fictional store in Montana that sells <laughs> jerky of various kinds, and oh, it just depends on how flip a mood I'm in, how much that story gets em, uh, embellished. Okay. But having searched back in my memory, I'm sure that that story has included strange vegetarian jerky uh, excursions. Uh, but I actually, uh, I enjoy beef and buffalo jerky, but I'm not aware of any actual vegetarian jerky. Only in the fictitious stores. Okay. Right. Totally yeah. fictitious. Right. Um, so one net vegetarian and um, some fake news about vegetarian beef jerky. Yes, Fine. fake news. Good. Let's, um, <laughs> let's get to the most important question of this podcast. So, Emacs are 
other random shit that nobody cares about. Oh my. So, uh, so I actually started my, you know, I, I feel like I'm obliged to represent for, you know, where I came from. And I started my career in the late eighties modifying Emacs to support, um, Chinese. That was my first wow. programming job. And I took that job because it was the highest paying job in work study. It was $6 an hour. So I worked on extending Emacs to support Chinese characters for $6 an hour. Uh, but I've, I have stuck with Emacs with, you know, I visited other editors, uh, but I've stayed with Emacs ever since. But I'm not particularly uh, religious on the topic. There. So Emacs it is. That's yes, what, an that's answer that's guaranteed that to please no one, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. I smoked, I smoked Emacs, but I didn't inhale. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the most important questions are, are now settled. So we can go to the, um, I think uh, there, there were a lot of questions on Twitter when we uh, started. So before we get into that one, uh, so you... you can you can you give us? You said you changed the languages multiple times, uh, from Java to Ruby to Clojure. Um, so can you can you tell us um, how did you start relevance? Maybe a bit bit before in the in the from 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 programming history. Yeah, sure. Uh, your programming history. So I was uh, I worked at a very interesting company from 1998 until 2003. Um, it was a software training company in the United States called Developmentor, and. Uh, this uh, company prided itself on having probably the best amount of outside Microsoft expertise anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and the technical uh, go-to guy there was uh, Don Box, uh, who is now mm -hmm. uh, at Microsoft uh, working on the Xbox, I think, no relation. Um, <laughs> and He just named it after himself. Yeah, they just named, no, I think the name was there uh, before he got there. Um, you know, embarrassingly, in terms of contribution to software history, uh, Developmentor was one of the signatories on the SOAP spec. So I'm not sure that that's the, I'm not sure that's a thing to be, uh, you know, incredibly proud of uh, at this well, point. Well, Rich but, taught C++, didn't he? So I guess you've got, you know, equal sins there. <laughs> everybody has skeletons in their cl closet. So, uh, you know, working there, I got to meet a, a, a range of people not geographically bound, right? It was a travel education kind of gig and so I got to know a lot of incredibly sharp people and uh, what happened back in the day was that Microsoft had this technology called Microsoft Transaction Server uh, and yeah, then MTS, yeah. Java Java came out with this technology called Enterprise Java Beans which was mm. uh, partially uh, a ripoff of Microsoft Transaction Server and <laughs> we saw that as an opportunity to branch the business out from Microsoft to Java. So um, I, I made the switch from Microsoft technology to Java technology kind of in a backwards way by knowing a set of a tool chain uh, that had great similarity that ran on top of the language and then working my way back into uh, learning Java. And then in 2001, you had uh, the towers fall down and everybody in the United States stops traveling. And working in a job that relies on your customers to travel to your city for training becomes a very, very unpleasant deal for mm. several years. It took a long time to recover. And in fact, it had not fully recovered by 2003 when I decided that I had had enough. I mean, we, we you know, bailed water for a couple of years and developmenter survived and that was great. Um, uh, but Justin Gatland, who worked there with me and I, uh, decided that we wanted to go it on our own 
and and do consulting and you know actually help people build stuff with the technology we were talking about. And you know our expertise then was still relevant Microsoft expertise to some degree, but but more Java. And so what I would call kind of early agile Java and people that were you know early adopters of Spring and Hibernate uh, and and things like that. So we were doing that and helping people use those things. Uh, and really, you know, started the company um, without um, uh, with a clear idea of the kind of lifestyle we wanted to lead and a clear idea that we wanted to stay on what we perceived to be the leading edge of business use of technology um, and not necessarily a lot of wisdom about how to run a company. Uh, but fortunately, we've had 14 years to work on that now. So <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've survived and gotten better over time. I was about to ask that because it, it, I mean, 14 years is a long time for a, for a company. And then, um, so well, when you started the company as founders and, and now, so what, what changed? So what was the culture that you're, that you were going for? Because you said there is a certain lifestyle that you wanted to have with the, with the company. Is there, is there still core DNA that, that, that still there at, at Cognitech because it has a big transition from relevance to Cognitech? So I think that certainly our interest in staying on what we perceive to be the cutting edge of technology has persisted throughout. And that means, you know, switching technologies and switching things that you're interested in. You know, after a few years, it became evident that to have the kind of impact that we wanted to have, um, we were going to have to do more than just be two people who, you know, sort of flew in and flew out. And so, you know, deeper engagement and doing entire projects. And so that led to, you know, relevance growing and hiring people and, and developing uh, a larger presence. And then, mm. you know, following on that, the, the switch to closure led to, um, you know, a new set of people who were interested in working for us at Relevance, a new set of uh, customers and people who were interested uh, in potentially uh, working with us. So that was another uh, big transition. And then when we started uh, working with closure, you know, at some point along that trajectory, uh, we talked with Rich about that and said, you know, hey, you know, should this be a company that's primarily about closure? And if it is, you know, would you want to be a part of that? And we decided, uh, initially at least, uh, instead, uh, Rich said, well, let me show you this thing on a blackboard that I've been kind of yep. interested in. And so he sketched out the ideas behind Atomic on a blackboard uh, over the course of a couple of hours, and I injured my jaw as my jaw just dropped <laughs> further and further and further. And and to be honest, before that, I had never really even liked databases, right? I had seen yeah. databases. I mean, you know, for somebody who came up through the languages that I came up through and came up through the cultures that I came up through, there was a lot of the database is the least agile part of your tool chain. It's the thing you have the least opportunity to influence. And so just having the guts to say, you know, we can change that level of the stack and make it something different. And of course, we benefited uh, in a huge way from the NoSQL movement. You know, if that had not happened, mm -hmm. uh, it would have been a lot harder to have had the business courage to say, yeah, we'll make a database that works differently and see, you know, if everybody's still <laughs> perfectly happy with SQL, if they're going to want to do that. So, so we did that. And, and after having released Datomic, so Datomic just turned five in terms of public release. Uh, I guess three months ago. So it's been mm -hmm. out uh, for five years. And after that, you know, sort of initial release, we got a lot of feedback from users. And as we internalized that feedback, one of the things we decided was that there really is a lot of synergy between Clojure and Datomic. 
And so, uh, so it, it made sense to form Cognitect and to have, you know, one company that was, you know, uh, a bunch of thought leadership in Clojure uh, and the team behind Datomic and able to explain, you know, how Clojure works, why you want to use Clojure, how Datomic works, how, why you want to use Datomic, why in particular you might want to use them together. Uh, and that has worked very well for us. So that's been a, uh, that's been a good thing. And I think it's been a good thing uh, for business users of Clojure. And that's certainly something, you know, uh, you know this is yeah. our day job. So uh, we are interested in helping companies that want to use Clojure uh, find a way to use Clojure, regardless of whether they use Clojure, regardless of whether it has any financial impact mm-hmm. on Cognitech, because as we all know, uh, with the sort of dominance of open source and programming languages, uh, people have a lot of different choices. And so you want your own ecosystem to feel healthy and safe and know that there are going to be other people working in the space that you're working in. So following on from that actually is uh, because we, we, we had some like topics around this stuff uh, that we thought about. And since we're talking about Cognitect and this is kind of the growing up story, maybe I don't know if you can share anything about what your plans are to like grow the company to, Maybe so are you going to do like the VC thing or, are, you know, because obviously you, you, we, everyone knows on this podcast, at least, that you've got some pretty awesome technology in there. Um, so if, if you are going to do VC, well, you know, OK, maybe you can't talk about the details. But if you're not, then it would be interesting to know why not or, or what your feelings are about how to grow a company like like Datomic or Cognitech or, you know, what, what you're doing. How do you get big and do you want to get big? So, you know, I think, I think that, you know, if, if you read between the lines, in some ways we, we are answering that question in visible ways by our behavior. But to be explicit yeah. about it, um, if we were taking funding, clearly we were doing a terrible job at it because <laughs> we're not growing 5x every year and whatever. That's not the kind of thing. Um, I mean, I'm actually neutral on that, right? I'm neutral on rapid growth or not rapid growth. But what I'm interested in is, is doing the technology right and, and getting the people bits right. And so, you know, we want to we want to build great tech, and we want to we want to be good people, and work with good people. And so, you know, if we can grow faster while doing that, that's great. Uh, and if it takes time and requires patience, that's fine too. And that's been a mix of that. So, you know, the company has been healthy um, and has grown some years, and has been relatively flat other years. And uh, you know, right now, uh, it seems like there's a an uptick uh, in interest on the business side in closure. So if I had to guess right now, I would say that 2017 will be a growth year. Obviously it's midway through the year, so I can't be hundred percent certain, yep. but I think yeah. that, you know, things are, uh, things are trending in a good direction, but it's driven more by, you know, who we want to be. And of course, the longer you don't do something like take VC funding, the less realistic it is to do. I mean, VCs want to have something tiny that they can put a small thing into and get a huge return. Um, yeah. and, and we're already not a tiny little turtle egg, right? We're a small turtle that already successfully, you know, got into the ocean and swam around a while. So, uh, so right. we're less interesting to them and we're not, you know, that interested at this point and haven't been. So that's okay. Okay. Well, let's hope the turtle gets bigger. That's good. <laughs> Cause it's turtles all the way down. We know that much. That's right. Uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, um, there was another one was, uh, I think, uh, about Cognitect was that there was something you built recently about uh, automated simulation testing. Um, 
the kind of tools that you build in house that you were were talking about. Um, there was a question from Jan Oberhagerman on um, on Twitter, I think, about whether or not you would open source this or whether you would make something more of it. Maybe you've even forgotten so, about it. I don't know. No, so so we have you know um, we devised a simulation testing engine for Datomic. Right. Uh, while we were building Datomic, and we open sourced that several years ago um, as Simulant, and we have used that. Uh, Cognitech has used that in consulting engagements to do simulation testing for customers, and uh, Mike Nygaard and Paul DeGrandis and uh, Craig Andera and other people have worked on uh, simulation testing tools and have open sourced them. So as far as I know, um, the things that we have done are open source. Um, okay. But but in particular, I think that that tweet mentioned Paul DeGrandis. And he is sort of an energizer human. So it's entirely possible that he has built five things in the last two weeks that I haven't heard of yet. So we can okay. you know, double check. Uh, but certainly I think that, that generally, you know, general purpose testing tools, um, I, I don't see a purpose in not having them be out there and released. It's not something you're going to. I mean, I think, I, I think yeah. having a full framework or something that's more targeted towards a vertical or something like that, you could make something commercial. But our testing tools... Um, you know, we build and we open source and they include things um, like test generative and, uh, and you know, uh, Cognitech. And, and we also, you know, support through Clojure's infrastructure uh, testing tools that are developed not by us. So, you know, Cognitech people did not write much of the code in test check. And that turns out to be mm. the most important uh, piece underneath spec in terms of the generative side of things. Good transition there. Good transition. <laughs> yes, well, you know, I've got the outline. You're a pro. So. You're a pro. <laughs> <laughs> this is, we didn't rehearse this, but it seems like we should have done, you know. <laughs> okay, so, so yeah. spec, so spec. So let's do it. <laughs> spec, yeah. Uh, just, just. I mean, I, I think probably many people on this, on who are listening to this will know about spec, but can, can we just like, just for the sake of uh, completeness, Maybe it's reminders of the basic goals of spec, because it obviously is going to be a huge thing going forward. So just to get us all on the same page, just want to quickly go through what the what the top tentpole items are. Sure. So, you know, the the one sentence I would use is that spec is a standard, expressive, powerful, and integrated system for specifying closure programs, and those are you know official words from Rich. And anyone who's seen Rich uh, give conference talks uh, complete with multiple dictionary <laughs> definitions on slides, uh, you know, knows that we we try to take words seriously. So to so to sort of fill those words in a little bit, mm. obviously spec is integrated, right? It was added to closure as a thing that's integrated in closure, and it touches closure in uh, about ten different places, and that represents careful thinking about all the places you would want to use this. And it is one of the value propositions of spec to have tried to think carefully about if you had specification, where in your language could you use it and try to make sure it was being used in all those places and that it was suitable for all those places. And, you know, one reaction you can have to spec, and this is a completely legitimate reaction, is I've seen all this before, right? There's not, in a, in a yeah. certain sense, there's nothing at all new about spec. Uh, but I think it's a very tasteful uh, combination of things in, in terms of how it's integrated. So that's the integrated part. Um, I think having it be standard uh, in the sense of everybody uses the same one instead of 10 different competing ones, not in the sense of you know going to a standards body 
We're not going to get ISO certified spec or something like that. Uh, but I think having it be standard is important. Uh, and of course, the integration gives it a huge leg in that direction, right? It's the presumptive favorite. Um, it's built in. Uh, it ought, And it's important that it do the things that people who have been using other specification uh, tools in Clojure you know, wanted to do so that it covers those needs. And then uh, in terms of being uh, expressive and powerful, um, it's expressive in that you know, it builds on what's already there. So any predicate that already exists in Clojure works in spec. And it doesn't work with an adapter or a widget or something you have to add to it. It's just, it works. Um, likewise, all of the collection types in Clojure, of which there are few, and that's itself a value prop of Clojure, all of those things <laughs> are fully integrated into spec. So you have, you know, out of the box with spec, uh, a set of tools for talking about the shape of data that's much richer than, say, the type system that people are used to coming from Java or C Sharp or something like that. And then, you know, another way to look at it is, you know, does it cover the different use cases that people have for specification? So one thread leading into spec is generative testing. You know, can I describe my programs with specifications and then have the language write tests for me? And you know, I think we have done a good job with that. Another one is better error messages specifically from macros. So in Clojure, because mm -hmm. it's a list, you, know, you can extend the language with macros. Mm -hmm. And uh, macros are notorious for being crazy powerful and being able to provide amazing extensions to the language and having completely opaque failure modes. Right, so if you, <laughs> if you pass in the wrong stuff to the macro, yeah, you no. get a stack trace from the compiler or whatever. And so, you know, being able to cover <laughs> that use that. case. And so, and if you look <laughs> at what spec does, as, as the ability, the regular expression part of spec in particular, because one of the things that macros do that is actually not very common elsewhere in Clojure is a lot of dependency on order, right? Mm -hmm. All over Clojure, we're always saying, let's use maps for this, let's use maps for that. That's gonna be flexible, that's gonna be yeah. self-describing, but nobody writes their programs with maps. I mean, imagine what your function definition yeah. would look like if it was colon, fun name, fun name, colon, <laughs> arg list, arg list, colon, body, body, or something body. like that. But so, so, but the ability of specs, the regular expression uh, component of specs, you know, is pointed directly at problems of macros. And if you go back and look at uh, libraries that people have written in Clojure and tools that people have written to help Clojure programmers and talks that have been accepted at Clojure conferences over the past five years, there's this thread of how do we make macro problems you know, more understandable for users. So it covers that use case. Um, it covers making development time safe. It covers you know, providing tools that you would not use in production, but you absolutely would want at development time. So instrumentation, for example, to mm -hmm. say, you know, let's tighten down everything in this program and show me if I'm doing something wrong. And then it supports ad hoc data validation. So it's completely suitable for you're making a, a web service endpoint that delivers JSON, you know, doing a spec check at the front door on the way in and on the way out to make sure that you are producing and consuming um, the data that you expect. It's performant enough to be suitable for that kind of use. So I think that you know gets to the the power of spec is covering this broad set of use cases. Yeah. So this is um, recently it's been moved out of the core, right? So. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say it. Um, the interesting point about 1.9 there um, is that you've... Uh, I take your point about the integration, and uh, but at the moment you've made a split um, in the alpha. 
So could you explain that a bit more, given given your assertions about the integration, the inter, the need for integration here? Right. So I'd like to, before I talk about the spec split, talk about what uh, what we mean when we say alpha on right, closure okay. releases and in closure documentation, mm-hmm. um, because I think that people have three or four different things that alpha might mean to them. Um, one thing that alpha might mean is brand new. Another thing that alpha might mean is crappy. Uh, another thing that <laughs> that another thing that alpha might mean is not tested very much, which might be crappy or might not. And another thing that alpha might mean is subject to change. Right? This is something that we don't consider fully baked. And so if you come to depend on it, uh, you may be broken later. Right. In terms yeah. of things that are released in closure, uh, the things that are marked alpha are only ever that last thing. Right. right? When you see something in closure or a contrib library, now I can't speak to every person who writes closure code, but when sure. you see something in a closure library or a contrib library that says alpha, that means not brand new. I mean, it might or might not be brand new. Um, it does not mean we think this might be crappy. Uh, it does not mean anything except subject to change. Mm. Uh, so having said that, spec is subject to change. We want to change spec. Spec's going to evolve. People are going to figure out ways to do things better. And so the namespace that spec now lives in as of the alpha 16 release of closure has the word alpha, not just in the Maven artifact, but in the actual namespace name. And that's a warning to users that you really can't avoid seeing, right? It's actually, when you do your namespace reference in your project, you have to type the word alpha or let your IDE auto complete the word alpha for you and say, Hey, I'm using an alpha thing. And what you should take from that when it's coming from closure itself is not that this is crappy or filled with bugs or whatever, but that it is possible that this is going to get changed out from under you in the future. Now, mm. having said that, I don't think we'll change a lot. I hope we don't change anything, right? We aspire not to change anything, <laughs> but there's definitely more likelihood of something in spec changing than something in closure changing. It's also the case that spec is likely to want to evolve more quickly than closure's re- release cycle, which is anywhere from six months to 18 months, you know, between major closure releases historically. Mm. And so the reason for this split is to allow closure 1.9 to be released and allow spec to continue um, its own evolution without having to be, without spec having to be held up for waiting for closure releases. Okay. So just so I'm clear about that, does that mean that 1.9 itself will not be spec'd? Or are you still still using it internally? Absolutely. Closure 1.9 will use spec internally and does already. And, you know, I hope that by the time Hmm. we get to 1.9 done that all the macros Right, those are the things that cause people the most beginner pain in closure. All the macros will have specs. Would be would be great. Um, several of them have specs right now, and so there's, so there's actually three libraries. There's closure itself, then there is spec alpha, and then there's closure specs alpha, which is specs for closure, and those can oh. evolve independently as well. And so closure will be specced, and closure specs can get better. Spec itself can get better, and closure specs can get better without those things having to be dependent on closures release cycle. And that's the objective. Okay. Well, I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, There was another question, actually, which was like from Arno Boss, actually, on Twitter. uh, And that was, do you have any, I mean, I guess it's still early days, but do you have any plans for building tools on top of spec? Um, There is apart from error messaging, which you kind of alluded to. So do I, Stuart Halloway, personally plan to build tools on spec? <laughs> I'm thinking about, uh, you know, whether there'll be tools released in the... Okay, forget it. You, you, take no, the question no, for I, I wanna, is, yeah. 
<laughs> no, no, I, I, I want to talk about this because I think it's incredibly yeah. important. I think it's important for people to, it's much harder to visualize the, the potential of a thing without a glamorous user interface. Sure. And so I would love to see people building glamorous user interfaces for spec. And those are going to be context dependent. So, you know, there's going to be an IntelliJ idea glamorous interface for spec. There'll be a separate one for Eclipse. There'll be a separate one for Lighttable. There'll be a separate one for, Emacs. you know, whatever, Vim, <laughs> Emacs, whatever. Those, those, there's a million things to be built there. And there are all these people who are enthusiastic about making Clojure easier for people who are getting started. So here's a nice concrete idea, right? Clojure spec is a tool that lets you draw red squiggly underlines smarter than static <laughs> typing would let you draw red squiggly underlines. That stuff's not done yet, and it's it's IDE specific, right? Somebody needs to go and draw red squiggly underlines. You know, this part of your data is broken, um, and it's much yeah. more general purpose than a type system, right? It doesn't have to be your program. It can be the JSON input to your web service is nonconformant. Here's mm -hmm. a red squiggly underline. You know, where it's nonconformant, and so you know, I think that that spec is a rich enabler of GUI tools, uh, and those mm -hmm. GUI tools are not reliant on any changes to closure, right? There's no need for closure to do sure. anything to enable those tools tomorrow. And so, and we're starting to see some of that. I know that uh, I think some of the closure on iOS stuff has cool uh, spec enabled highlighting yeah. already. Uh, and I, yeah. you know, I think that stuff is fantastic and I would love to see more of it. In terms of like spec itself, you know, you mentioned that it's alpha, it's subject to change. Is it about refining what you've got? Or is it about, you know, you think that there are some ideas that are still like not in the spec world yet that you want to bring into that spec world? Or is that, again, just something that is, you just want to leave it open to evolution? I guess the question is, is it, is it kind of done, needs to be polished? Or is it is it kind of still open? Is the door still open to new ways of doing things in spec? So I think that there's definitely a need for polish. There's no doubt. There are, there are tickets right now for things that need to be done. There are things that are chapping me when I use it that need to be enhanced and fixed. And uh, I'm easily satisfied. So there, you know, we should get more input. And I would say it would be great. <laughs> I mean, the biggest that. thing, the the biggest <laughs> thing that uh, the biggest thing that would help with with spec would be for people to use it and and you know provide experience reports. That's incredibly valuable. Those experience reports. And so so part of the answer is. You know, uh, the closure community is way, way smarter than any one or ten of us, and so I would love to know what those stories are, so we can all digest them and think about that. Having said that, you know, I have a couple of immediate thoughts of things that are unlikely to have you know further refinement in the one nine time frame, but I think are clearly you know areas where things could substantially change, hopefully additively. Um, one of them is. Uh, test performance. And this hmm. gets into having a more closure-ish way to think about dependencies. I mean, right now, we have this very monolithic way of thinking about dependencies where the granularity of dependencies is an entire jar file. And, you know, as soon as the happy world that I want to see come into being of people writing generative tests with specs becomes a little bit more established, it's going to be immediately followed by a sad world of, oh my God, these specs take a long time to run. Right. Yes. <laughs> I used I used to write ten unit tests that did ten things. Now I write ten specs that each do a million things each because they're generating a million cases. It takes a long time to run. Um, we can be a lot smarter about dependencies and be able to say, you know what? I know, 
And you've seen some research on this. We had the Codec project with the Atomic a few years ago. You know, we can keep yeah. track of dependencies in a much more granular way and say, you know what? I know in this namespace, these 75 functions didn't change, and this one did. And so if the spec doesn't depend on code that goes through a path that hits that one function, I don't need to run it again. Mm. And you can even take that information and share it, mm. right? You could SHA that information up and put it in your GitHub repo and yeah. say, you know what? I already tested this. Here's a SHA certifying that I did. You don't ever have to run that again. So I think there's a lot of sophistication yeah. about what tests we run that, that ought to happen. Another thing I think that people will encounter is the programmability of specs themselves. So given a spec, you can call form and get back the form that was used to make the spec. But if you use specs for a while, you find yourself saying, you know what, I want to be able to write programs that you know pick and choose and combine bits and pieces of other specs. And that's possible, but I think that could be easier and better. And so I think that's another area where you know spec might you know change and improve in the future. Um, and I'm sure there are others, but those are those are you know like I said, there are you know ten thousand. 20,000 people, whatever, in the closure ecosystem. Um, there's ideas yeah. from one person, but I think there are. You know, we're going to see a lot of other <laughs> ideas as people use it more. I think. Yeah. I mean, for me, I was thinking that uh, just, just. Sorry, yeah, I kind of just thought about this, but one of the things that we've got are these, like, um, these, this support for for strings and for ints and that kind of stuff, um, and we have that kind of thing in the reader as well. And the reader is extensible, but it seems like there's very little sharing of those extensions, let's say, uh, except for between clients and servers in particular projects. Um, but but actually, there are quite generic things that could be useful outside of it. And I guess spec should should benefit from that as well eventually. There should be some kind of stuff built around or on top of that. Maybe it's not by you, but but by but by the community to, to share, you know, reuse commonly defined specs. For, for domain-specific things, maybe. Yeah, I think it would be fantastic. I mean, like how cool would it be? money and dates and stuff like that, you know. Right, and, well, not just money and dates, but, like, in terms of, like, you know, the, the getting started, started experience is so important. What if all of the cool little sample apps in Clojure ended with having a spec that was, you know, you would reuse if you were actually doing real work in that domain, mm. yeah. right? So if you, oh. actu if you actually were building the next big to-do list, <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> right? You know, or the next big pet store. You go real to the that, you have, Stuart, yeah. <laughs> that you would already have the, the appropriate specs for that domain. But it would demonstrate okay. the value prop. And, and, and the real point is that, yeah, we could, have, we could have spec sharing. And I think that that will happen. And it's just a matter of, you know, right now people are still just integrating the ideas. Just, just one, I mean, I, mm -hmm. maybe this, is, this will sound a bit sucky to, to you, maybe. But I think that the, what you guys have done with the spec guide is really good. Uh, you've got and you yourself have done a series of videos about how to use this thing. The community has really stepped up and I think made a lot of articles and tools and stuff like that. This, I mean, honestly, for me, this feels like really the first, not the first time, I don't know, feels like for me, maybe living through it, it's a really great way to introduce new technology. It almost feels like it's been planned or it's, a, the, 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 you guys have kind of like, done a really great job of putting it out there and, and engendering kind of enthusiasm. And I don't know, was there a plan around this or is it just kind of like, we'll do it this way and then we'll adapt? Or did you have a, did you have a kind of strategy for, for releasing this to the world in a certain way? And because it all seems to have worked. I just wondered if it was kind of forethought or if it's just been serendipity. 
So, well, first, thanks. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased. I'm pleased that, that people were able to get into spec. And I think that the work that Alex Miller did on the guide is an important piece of that. Yeah. And, and it's, it's easy to, to prove, uh, prove out your statement, right? We can go look at the number of things that are interesting and powerful and complicated in closure. And then we can go and look at the number of things that are, um, have guides for them. And, and there's yeah. very few guides. And so, you know, uh, you know, we've, we have, you know, I guess Chaz Emmerich originally, and then more recently Cognitech have run the state of closure survey. And yep. so it is a, it is a feedback item, you know, every year, more and better documentation, more and better documentation. And so, <laughs> uh, and I agree more and better documentation yeah, is a yeah. really good thing. It's a really good thing. And so the guide, I think, you know, I think first off, I want to say that I think that that the closure community as a value nails it on emphasizing rationales, mm. right? Having a rationale mm. and explaining why you're doing what you're doing and situating it in a context of other things is incredibly valuable. And I think that that there's a good job being done there. I think there's a lot of work that could be done at the guide level, which I think is the next yep. thing you want. And so, yeah, there was definitely, you know, thinking about how to how to build this. It was like, OK, rationale, check. We know we do that. That's how we roll. And then I was like, okay, what, what is the next highest value thing that could possibly be made? And I think the, the to me, the answer was guide. And yep. so that's why we did it. And I think people liked it, but you know, it would be great to get feedback on what other things people would like. And then I think the videos that I did and other things are really kind of third order, right? That's nice. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, there are people who want to, you know, get things from videos and that's great. But I would, you know, if I could only do one thing, I would do the rationale. If I could only do two things, I would do the rationale and then the guide. So, right, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pretty happy with the order that we did things. And I, you know, it would be great to have more guides. It would be great yeah. to have people looking for the best writing in closure blogs and reaching out to them and saying, "Hey, you ought to make that a guide." You know, you yeah. ought to you ought to go. Um, you know, contributing to the closure website has never been easier. It's by pull request, so it's very you know a workflow that people are familiar with. Um, and Alex Miller helps people shepherd you know things that they're writing through in there. So it would be great to have more guides. Yeah. So let's, um, let's, I think because, um, I'd like to know how, what, what your typical day is like most of the time do you spend on Datomic or do you spend on customer projects or how does it work with you at uh, Cognitect? So it varies, you know, from time to time, but in, in terms of the things that I am working on right now, I spend the bulk of my time thinking about making the Datomic experience on the cloud better. Yeah. And then I spend a substantial minority of my time thinking about development at the REPL and how to really evangelize the REPL particularly yeah. uh, to closure developers. And I think that we I think we undersell the dynamic development aspect of closure. If you go to the website, if you go and look, I, I was mm -hmm. surprised when I was doing the research. I'm giving a couple of talks on REPL development in Chicago in a few weeks. And I was surprised yeah. when I went back to the website, you know, Closure lists dynamic development before functional programming. It lists it before Lisp. It is the first thing on yeah. the list as this is really important. Mm. And it's not just about being dynamically typed. It's about having this tangible runtime that you have a streaming interaction with that you can evolve and change while you're programming. And so I think trying, yeah. to, trying to, right now for me, it's like trying to take what is sort of unconscious competence you know, things that I do that I don't even know that I'm doing and yeah. turn them into prose or blog posts or conference talks and thinking about how to 
uh, you know, share that with others and also encourage other people to share their stories. Because every time I talk to anybody about how they use closure at the REPL, I learn something, right? Uh, you know, yeah. my experience is, is one experience, but there are other interesting experiences as well. Um, I happen to have been okay. thinking about that so, all weekend. So I, I'm kind of gushing probably. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, um, so as I said, bulk of the time you're, you're spending on Datomic. So Datomic has been like a, uh, of course, the, um, as you said, it's it's almost five years since yes. Datomic has been released. And um, there has been a lot of chatter around um, when it was released, you know, people were asking, okay, why it is not open source? And we also got a couple of questions from Twitter, which are essentially centered around, uh, I think we one from Nola Stowe, Stowe, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce it, but um, it's a closure geek on Twitter. Uh, he says, "Will Datomic will be will ever be open source at a lower price?" And there is another one, Spiral Ganglion, and um, it's also very fairly similar to that one. Uh, this is uh, well, the, the the question says they have a very small startup and uh, they want to use uh, uh, Datomic. They're very you know very much in love with Datomic, but the pricing seems to be only open source or enterprise or VC kind of thing. Um, so these two questions, I mean, th th this has been there for five years now, right? Will, will it ever be open source? Will it ever be, I don't know, uh, so cheap that anybody can buy it? So so uh, just to tell people who maybe have not followed the history. So we have had, um, first let me just say, I feel incredibly lucky that we launched a product that a lot of our interest comes from the closure ecosystem and that we have people who are uh, incredibly enthusiastic and so, you know, our, our community of people who are trying Datomic and our customer base have been incredibly nice and supportive. And so it has been a really fun process of evolving the product. And we have, uh, we have evolved the licensing model and the product and the pricing, you know, um, two or three times over, five, over the five years. And all of that yep. was um, in, in close consultation uh, both with customers and with people who are about to be customers and people who are a little bit further out and said, you know, well, I can't be a customer because of X, Y, and Z. And mm -hmm. so so that that dialogue has been really interesting and challenging. And the changes that we have made have been very well received. So, uh, and that's because, you know, we came out with our initial story and then we, you know, uh, entered the market and we found out, you know, what we thought that was correct and what we thought that wasn't correct and you know made changes mm. so that's been good um having said that talking specifically about the pricing uh part of my interest in making datomic experience uh better on the cloud uh comes from our history we launched datomic as a cloud only a very yep. uh future thinking database it was it only yep. ran in the cloud and yep. the very first thing that happened was people said some people said, great, <laughs> and they started slowly. using it on the cloud. But 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 a lot of people said, we want to run that in our data centers. So we yep. got dragged from FutureThink right back into PresentThink. Mm -hmm. And and over the last five years have done a lot of work on the Datomic experience in data centers. And that's mm -hmm. work that's not super visible in the surface area of the product, you know, the, the mm -hmm. API. It doesn't make a difference there, right? That's been stable. But in terms of, of you know interactions with customers and helping them run on their storage, or you know yeah. work around strange things about their data center which nobody else would care about, um, and those are people who are willing to pay for software. And so you know that's been an important part of the story. Um, at this point, we have the the time and the resources and the flexibility uh, to be really refocused on cloud again. 
right? We have, we have good answers for people who are running in data centers. And of course, our customer base is five years further in the future than they were five years ago. And so they are more ready to be in the cloud and, and so on. And so we're able to look at things to say, okay, you know, Datomic is already split apart compared to a traditional monolithic database. A monolithic database has these, you know, high value, high ceremony, sacred processes that you have to sort of baby along. And Datomic really breaks that model and it says we have, we presume cheap ephemeral read resources that are distinct from cheap ephemeral write resources that are distinct from cheap ephemeral storage resources, any of which might fail. And the architecture mm. is designed like that. Uh, but there's more that we could do there. We could, we could make it simpler still. We could break apart uh, parts that are currently delivered together. We could also do more automation. So more yep. of, uh, you know, you, you focus on the semantics of your application and Datomic does more operationally for you. So you don't have to worry about that. And when you simplify further and when you automate those pieces, so simplifying as people who come to Clojure sometimes learn, simplifying, you know, the short run is not always fun, right? You had yep. one thing that was really complicated that did what you want. And now you have 10 things that are simpler <laughs> that you have to put back together to make do what you <laughs> yeah, want, but you're yeah. going to be able to make them do other things in the future. But once <laughs> you have that, once yeah. you have that simple thing, you know, once you've got simple sort of sorted out, you can really focus on easy and you can say, how can we assemble mm -hmm. those 10 pieces and make it really easy for this use case without compromising uh, on the simplicity. And one of the things that comes yeah. out of that then is the ability to deliver a more granular datomic and a more elastic datomic. And this is just mm -hmm. facts of the software and facts of its operation. It has nothing to do, at, it seems, at the front with the business model. But once it's more granular and more elastic, then that lets you come back and revisit the pricing model, right? Because okay. now, now, and, you um, can, so now you can say you have super tiny granular datomic that's suitable yeah. for the, a hobby project. So that's definitely an interest and definitely an area where I'm spending my time right now. Okay. And... Uh, uh, what what is the so I'm I'm assuming that the open source thing is kind of a um, no go for this one because you want to keep it like a closed source one with the core uh, team being Cognitech sorry the Datomic Inc. Yes, that's right. Um, Datomic is not yeah. and will not become open source. So that's an that's an easily answered question. Yeah, yeah. And um, is there a um, uh, plan or something that you're going to build your own storage engine for it, or you're always going to piggyback on I don't know Amazon? Um, Redis or, or Postgres, or so you keep using the uh, same storage uh, modules. So that's an interesting that's an interesting question. We already built a storage engine for it back in oh, back okay. in back in 2011, right? You know, th mm -hmm. uh, five weeks before we were going to ship, uh, Amazon mm -hmm. announced DynamoDB, and yeah, yeah. we took a look at that and we looked at, and we were we were happy with our storage. Um, it was mm -hmm. uh, Rich Hickey certified simple, but <laughs> it was a new thing. It was a new thing that people had to run on their own behalf. And, you know, there's there's not a need for that. People are not looking to us. I mean, people are much more interested um, in one of two things. Either they want to run Datomic in their own data center, yeah. in which case yeah. they don't they would be happier if it ran on storage that they already know how to manage. And that has mm. been a, a really big value prop. Uh, but then yeah. the other side of it is they just want it to do everything and they don't care how it does it. Um, yeah. And in that world, you know, uh, if we were going to release a more sort of shrink-wrapped, you know, you press a button on the internet and 30 seconds from now you have Datomic instead of your running processes on your own or whatever, um, yeah. then 
you know, how that works, A, how that works under the hood doesn't really matter to you, but B, I would be much more likely to, to use something that was well-established that you could point at and say, yeah. hey, you know, rock-solid storage provided by DynamoDB or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Actually, there is another little question that people get there is that if you want to move, because Amazon is the big, you know, the kind of gorilla in the room, the elephant in the room, whatever you want to call it, not the elephant, the gorilla. It's a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm great with words. I've got the best words. Uh, so the, the, <laughs> you've got these, the, the big Amazon guys, uh, but some of my friends, uh, they run a, a, a Datomic, uh, a company that runs on Datomic, and they'd like to move to, um, to the Google Cloud. Uh, and suddenly they're kind of like, oh, God, nightmare, or oh, Joyant or something like that. So they have to run Cassandra themselves or they have to run something else. Do you think about maybe this is not on the on the list of questions, but what the hell? Do you think about um, potentially looking at other DynamoDB like um, storage servers on like on Google or Joyent or Microsoft or other cloud providers? So we keep an eye on all of those things to to varying degrees, yeah. and the degree and that those degrees are really determined by feedback that we get from users. Right. So. Um, which I should take the time to mention that, you know, um, just in the last six months, um, we rolled out a system where people can do feature voting. Um, Actually, yeah. there was a and question about that. Yeah, so <laughs> you're killing a question so yeah, as we well. Can, awesome, now, we yeah. can, now we can take care of a question as well. Yeah. So, so the question, I think, was, you know, how's that working out? And yeah. the answer is pretty well. So... So I think that this is something that the Clojure ecosystem could actually benefit from as well, which is, you know, feature voting... Uh, features and feature voting really ought to be totally separate from bug tracking. Mm, uh, yeah. And right now, you know, sometimes feature requests in the closure ecosystem come in through Jira, which is just not where I want to manage uh, feature requests, ideally. Um, so with Datomic, there's a separate system for uh, for doing feature requests, and people can vote, and it has the important property that you have a certain amount of power, and you can choose where you spend your power. So you can't you can't go in there and vote, say, all, I think all 100 things that people have asked for are equally important because that doesn't really add information, right? You have to choose where you're going to spend your capital. That's been helpful. We've probably knocked off a half dozen uh, features that people requested through the system. Um, we could definitely, you know, would appreciate more people going in there, especially things like, you know, I'm running on this, uh, this particular cloud or this particular storage system and, you know, I could use Datomic if it was running there. Um, um, we don't have enough people using it yet that you could draw uh, strong quantitative conclusions. So, so it's okay. going it's going well, but we'd love to have more feedback. So, uh, on the Datomic itself, I remember maybe it was a long time ago. Even on the mailing list, you said you're working on a book. So, how is it coming along, or when so, is it on the horizon? So, one of the things you'll notice um, consistently uh, across the closure and Datomic ecosystems is uh, we are very circumspect about providing calendars for the future uh, or roadmaps <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. because we've been writing software all our lives and we know how you know unrealistic those things are. Um, as an experiment, just to prove to myself that roadmaps are incredibly terrible and painful, I decided that I would make a prediction on the calendar about writing a Datomic book. And I can tell you that from having made that prediction, which I think came and passed like a year ago, um, <laughs> that I have again been reminded of my lesson and will no longer make calendar predictions. I, I know <laughs> what it is, though, actually, Stuart. I know what it is. Because you kind of gave us the clue earlier on in this conversation, which is that when you get a book, you'll go one zero with the Atomic. And until then, you're not going to do it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's all, it's, all, it's all tied together. So, 
it is it is definitely. I mean, I write about Datomic yeah. all the time, and yeah. it is it is my intention to write a cool book about Datomic that I will be really proud of, and that hopefully will be very useful for people. Um, and I'm going to make no more calendar statements because I am right. appropriately <laughs> I'm appropriately chastened by the colossal failure of the last statement that I made. <laughs> there was there was some other questions which I think uh, since we just stick on Datomic for a little bit longer because um, we yeah. do want to talk about some other bits and pieces as well. Um, but uh, we're going a little bit longer today, but I think I think we can we can take that. Uh, so because it's such a fascinating conversation. So the other thing is, and I've been interested in this for a long time, is whether whether um, Datomic will actually ever support another language of peers, especially will peers run without without the JVM? Will you ever run that on a, on a JavaScript environment, for instance? Well, certainly language support for Datomic is an area that we want to be very user-driven. Right. And so that's one of the things that people you know vote for on the site. Um, I also think it's important, as much as I love the peer model, and you know if you've used Datomic, you may have also come to love the yeah. peer model. You know, yeah. since November of last year, we've had a more traditional client model, and mm-hmm. I could imagine that in the fullness of time, that the majority of Datomic users will be on the client model. Uh, certainly, in the client model, uh, once the client wire protocol is out of alpha, that will be fully specified, and we will both work to implement clients and to support other people with technical resources uh, implementing clients. So I would say that that in the short run. If you're running not on Java, not on Clojure, it's a lot more likely to have an awesome client uh, than it is yeah. to have an awesome peer. Really delivering the peer experience is deliver the Clojure experience <laughs> in another platform so you can deliver the peer experience. But and we've so kind of got a, that with ClojureScript and the CLR, so I guess uh, that's a yes then. <laughs> Well, it's you know, it, it, no, it's, no, it's, not it's that doable. Easy. I get that. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, of platform sensitive code um, in the peer, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of platform sensitive code um, in clients. I mean, it's a it's it's an intrinsic trade off, and the peer provides a fantastic locality, and along with that locality, you're sort of wedded to the platform. So, right. um, I you know, will there in the fullness of time be other peers? I don't know. Will there, in the fullness of time, yeah. be a lot more language clients? Almost certainly. So Excellent. Maybe okay. we can. Sorry, go on, VJ. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can talk about the recent uh, ongoings as the I think uh, as the last topic. Um, so there has been some kerfuffle on the internet saying closure is dying, blah blah blah, something and that kind of stuff. And then there is a lot of discussion. Of course, there are as as Ray was pointing out uh, before the before we started recording um, that th- there are some valid points or valid criticisms that that Kologi can do better or Kologi community can do better and um, uh, uh, we had um, Eric Normand uh, on the show as well the um, uh, functional uh, TV and um, he also wrote wrote a blog post about what Cognitech can do better to to uh, mobilize the community so what are your thoughts on this one this whole thing that is going on right now the Kologi community well, there's, there's, you know, a lot to say because this touches a lot of different things. First off, I would say that Eric's, you know, uh, blog post was quite thoughtful, and so people should read that. I think it was it was very, uh, very considered on all sides. Um, yeah. I think that uh, it's difficult to, so so first off, there's always there are always problems, and we should strive to learn from each other and from other language communities. And I think that one mm. of the great things about the closure ecosystem is that enthusiasts for foreclosure tend to come from very disparate technology backgrounds. 
And so throughout most of my career, every time I hopped from one language to another, I was going with a large cohort of other people going yeah. in the same direction as me. And when I came to Closure, I realized that I was hitting this melting pot of really different cohorts of people coming from different interests and different backgrounds. And so because of that, I think there's there's a potential to sort of, you know, you think you understand the whole elephant, but you really just have your hand on the elephant's trunk or on the elephant's tail. <laughs> yeah. And so people don't necessarily see, you know, what the experiences of other people are. Uh, just to, to be quantitative uh, about the closure experience, we find that the vast number of people coming to Closure Conj every year are new, right? It's like almost 50% people who are new to Closure, new to the conference that year. So I think that that's healthy evidence that there is a, a large funnel of people coming to Closure. And I would suspect, if we could do the data analysis, that if you looked at the other Closure conferences, the regional conferences and other events that people are running, that those things tend to pick up more advanced users and people who have yeah. been in closure longer, that they know the, the overall ecosystem better. They have a better idea of what they want and what they're interested in. They're hunting by topic for what yeah. conference they're going to go to instead of, hey, I'm new here, I should go to the big one. And that's mm -hmm. all great. And it's fantastic to see, you know, especially in Europe, all the little closure conferences uh, yep. that have uh, sprung up, you know, in the last couple of years, but not just in Europe, in other places as well. Um, mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the anecdotes that was selected to make the argument that the closure is um, stagnant was that the mailing list traffic seems to have leveled <laughs> off. And yeah. what has actually happened there, I think, is, you know, it's kind of ironic because in yeah. one week you have this, the mailing list is leveled off, is closure dying, followed by um, the number of closure users on Slack are going to overwhelm Slack's free tier and Slack's yeah. going to fall over. And so I, what I think happened Slack is that Slack... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think what happened was, you know, Slack got very trendy for uh, yeah. a certain yeah. subset of the closure community, and they went there preferentially to uh, the mailing list. Um, I think it's yeah. great that the community is big and diverse enough enough that, and maybe people have, you know, different ways that they want to communicate, that that people are in in different places. So I think that that you know, from a numbers perspective, you know, there are a lot of different proxies you could look at. Um, you could look at. Uh, downloads from Maven Central of Closure, which mm. just are on a sort of ongoing uptrend over time. So mm. um, it's very difficult to interpret any of this information, obviously, yeah. um, including the Maven downloads, right? It could be one big company just started downloading in a bunch, you know, in a, in a given month. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I see a thriving ecosystem in terms of the people that I interact with, and I see a lot of interest in the the growth of the tech and in particular the additive growth. I mean, I think the thing that's just stunning about Closure is that it has had a series of things that felt revolutionary in terms of your experience. You had Closure Script, yeah. you had Core Async, you had Transducers. Now we have Spec. All these things that that feel like wow, this is a revolution in how I think about writing my code. But if you look at what they actually did to your Closure programs, they're additive. Mm. Right? These are all yeah. additive changes. The, none of those things I named broke existing closure programs, right? All of the, mm. and that's just amazing that, you know, over yeah. 10 releases that we keep doing that. And, and I think that as long as, uh, you know, we continue to focus in terms of the tech on making that kind of additive change that you're going to see people who are building businesses around closure, appreciate that and yeah. say, you know what? I wrote code five years ago and it still works. 
And I think that the talk that, that Rich gave at the last conj um, mm. about compatibility uh, speculation yeah. was the title of the talk, you know, is very yeah. well worth people in the closure community um, understanding. I think we have an opportunity to show leadership there in how mm. we manage uh, naming and releasing artifacts. And I think that we could, you know, pervasively throughout the entire ecosystem, uh, build software that's more stable uh, in the face of change. And I think that yeah. that will really facilitate, you know, people not just coming to closure, but staying with, with closure once they're there. So if you if you have to pick up something like um, based on different kinds of uh, feedback from, as I said, when when people are coming from different backgrounds, they have different priorities. They look at different things in the in the community. Uh, from um, being being a you know one of the core um, I don't know um, core team member and and as as the guy who is looking into every line of code that is getting into closure, what what would be your first preference and what is the first thing that you that you would like to do better? So I, I think there's a couple of things there. One of them is that there's there's a difference between what happens to closure and what happens to the ecosystem, and so it's important to mm. keep those two things separate in your mind. Um, mm. One of the rules for closure, and this should be true for any programming language, is uh, don't make any change here that you don't have to make here. Right? If you look at a problem mm. and say I could solve this in closure, or I could solve this in a library. And the answer, and, and there's not a compelling reason to solve it in closure. You ought to make that solution in a library. If you look, and, and that goes further. If you look at a problem and say, you know what, we could solve this in closure, or we could solve it in a library, or we could solve it, you know, with documentation or a convention about how we work as as people in the ecosystem without writing code at all. We probably should solve it there, right? So we want to we want to find ways to make the changes, um, uh, you know, where they should be made in the right layer of the stack. Uh, the flip side of that is you want to make changes in the core that are going to be most impactful to the broadest set of uses. And you want to think generally and not in terms of, you know, one-off solutions to problems and band-aids like that. So that's kind of some of the technical prioritization. But then the other thing is to realize, you know, it may be the case that the biggest problems the closure ecosystem is facing don't require language to changes to closure at all, but they're still worth working on. And so, mm. you know, one of the reasons that I'm focusing on the closure experience at the REPL right now is that my experience doesn't gel with some of the concerns other people have. And I want to explore that and say, look, when, you, when I encounter the problem you're describing, here's how I would solve it at the REPL. And mm. I want to have that conversation um, before I would make a change to closure, right? And that conversation might lead to me realizing, you know what, I have, I have you know, um, experience blindness here. And so I don't, mm. I don't see the, the thing that you're seeing. And once I can see it through your eyes, you know, then, then we can, you know, do something different. But I would, you know, certainly there's a recurring theme of documentation could be better. And, you know, what is the most powerful thing one person could do to make documentation better? I could write documentation, right? That's the thing that I could do. Um, or the, the core team could say documentation is now managed via pull request on GitHub. Which, which it yeah. was not until, you know, I don't know, a year ago when that change was made. So that is mm. a much higher leverage change than any specific piece of documentation I could write, right? Yeah. And, and it opens the door for a, a much larger group of users, you know, to come in and make needed improvements to documentation. And so that's the kind of change, you know, that the kind of higher leverage yeah. change. And it doesn't require a change to the language. Or pointing out to someone, you know, you've encountered this problem and you have you know, developed a patch to closure that would solve this problem, but here's a solution that could be done in a library. 
that doesn't yeah. require a patch to closure. That that's a much lower bar. It also provides a lower cost way to vet the solution and try it out in production for a year, you know, before hmm. we make a change to closure in the same area. So those are some of the kinds of things that I would look at in terms of priority setting. The other thing, the thing I was going to ask you uh, also, Stuart, was because because you were in a company as well. You kind of you're, bit, you're, you're you know you're kind of eating your own dog food when you go out and do consultancy gigs. Um, I think what some people are looking towards, uh, and we see this in some of the questions actually, is what kind of like tools or templates or libraries or those kind of like power packs, if you like, do you guys put together um, on consulting gigs that might help other people have success? Is that some, I mean, it doesn't have, that's definitely not a change to closure and it's not even a change to closure.org, but is it something which, you know, your, your kind of experience as a consulting company could help to, to kind of, uh, give people a better leg up or a bigger lift and a leverage in terms of, you know, what you're doing real world in terms of your consulting assignments? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and let me take it um, in a one-off way and then in a maybe sort of a step back kind of way. So, so one thing that Cognitech has produced that is a power pack that's grown out of the consultancy building things is Pedestal, right? right. So Pedestal is is not the dominant way necessarily people build uh, web applications in Clojure. It is the dominant way probably that people at Cognitect currently build uh, web applications in Clojure, but that's not a mandate, right? This is, this is we're up in toolkit land, and so different projects yeah, sure, are gonna sure. have different needs and different mandates, but this is a concrete example of something that's being battle-tested in consulting engagements, and then um, as a second thought, you know, uh, uh, given away as open source and documented and reaching out to people and trying to sort of help people um, adopt it where it would be relevant. It's not necessarily going to be uh, a one-size-fit-all solution. On the other hand, it was devised and has a rationale for specific problems that at the time it was created, other Clojure Web Toolkits didn't cover. And so it's, yep. a, it's a concrete example of that, you know, sort of, you know, does Cognitect, how could Cognitect share uh, you know, a power yeah. pack yeah. of, of, you know, things that, that we have, uh, you know, built to solve problems. Okay. I, I think there's a general, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I think there's a general feeling that that pedestal hasn't got the kind of adoption in the community that maybe is, was foreseen. There could be reasons behind that. Um, you know, I've, but we can leave that for another discussion. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I guess the question is if you're, if you, if that's what you're mostly doing, then that's what you're going to push, and that's fine. Um, I guess there should be other consultancies like Juxt and people like that. They're also pushing their toolkits, and that's all fine also. So, I think there's a higher level of value that we can add, though, which is that we are in conversations probably with more big, stodgy enterprise companies using Clojure than almost anybody else. I mean, we try to talk to everybody yeah, yeah. out there. Yeah. And, and so I can relay you know, some feedback from there. And I've been doing this over the weekend. If you've been following me, you know, tweet over the weekend. Uh, one of the yeah. challenges that we have is that we sometimes make things sort of too much for ourselves. And and the way that this shows up, this is the symptom and not the cause, is the lining and pluginization of valuable yeah. tools. Yeah. And, so, and so people say, well, you know, when I make a tool for the Clojure ecosystem, the first thing on my documentation, on my README, should be, here's the line plugin for using this. And they justify that by saying, you know, look, 90% of Clojure projects per the Clojure survey use Liningen. 
Now, these things yeah. are all true, but uh, you know, we're going out and evangelizing to the non-converted. And let me tell you, the non-converted do not use Lanningen, yeah. right? <laughs> and, and the non-converted who have money to spend writing software, we all know what they use. Right. Yeah. If they're in the JVM ecosystem, they use Maven. Yeah. And so yeah. I have been reaching out to individual closure projects and saying, hey, look, can you please document your story, your library story for a Maven user mm. and and lead with that? I mean, they may not lead with that. And I, there are reasons not to. I understand that there's a and this is not about lining in or even Maven. It's it's really about, you know, we are producing tools that are usually kind of functional tools. And so I mm. want a functional entry point. And, you know, having a lining and plug-in plug or a Maven, a Maven plugin would also be wrong, by the way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, a Maven <laughs> plugin would be wrong for the same reasons that a lining and plugin would be wrong for the same reasons that a Gradle plugin would be wrong. Right. The right way to do it is to say, here's the jar file and here's its Maven coordinate in Maven yeah. format. And here's its Maven coordinate uh, in lining and mm. format. Uh, mm. And we definitely have projects where, where we are prohibited from using lining in. Yeah. So, so, and that, you know, and we have projects where we're prohibited from using closures. So another thing I would say to people is that if you're trying to facilitate, you know, enterprise use of closure, I understand that it's more of a pain in the neck to put things in Maven central, right? That there's a, there's a higher bar there, but you are, you know, if you're out there saying, I want to do open source and do a favor to other people, then if you put things in Maven central, they are going to be able to reach a much broader set of users uh, than just the closure ecosystem as it exists today. So those are kind of yeah. you know higher order feedback uh, on the topic of how do we make a better power pack? We can make the stuff we have into a better power pack by making it more consumable uh, by people who don't necessarily share all of our presumptions about how we build stuff. Yeah. Okay, then one one final question. Then I think we can. Uh, I think we took almost one and a half hour. Wow, it's like one of those uh, longest. Uh, um, but of course, very informative, and it's it's a pleasure. When we can continue talking for hours, and then I, I know you know it's it's a never-ending things in in closure world. But we'll, um, we'll just make so, it an annual thing, Stu. Okay, from exactly. now on. Okay. <laughs> Standing invite. So, um, <laughs> Sounds good to me. Is, Excellent. Um, Rich Hickey is in some sort of a witness protection program or something. I mean, how do you protect him? Because he seems to be like the guy for everything. And then, you know, people are kind of concerned that what happens, what is the future of the closure when it has a bus factor of one? So so, so the political party that is worried about uh, uh, closure if Rich Hickey's gone must be like the opposite faction from the political party who's worried who's worried about that closure is dying or that they don't like how things are <laughs> yeah, going yeah. right now. So I, I suggest that we let those two political parties fight it out and the rest of us get back to writing software. hundred percent, hundred percent. Awesome. Okay. Well, um, wow. No, I was just going to say um, it's been a great conversation. I think, you know, I, yeah, I want to, yeah. I want to let uh, Stuart get on with his day though. And uh, <laughs> I think so. I think and, we, uh, I think we've taken up a hell of a lot of time and it's been great, a great time. Uh, yeah. But we, we would love to have you back on, on the show, by the way. I mean, we, we still need to pick your brain on a lot of other things as well. I know it's a one and a half hour is not enough. And um, and one thing that I noticed is that you're you're extremely good with names. I think probably that's because of your, your historian or something. I don't know. I mean, you're very specific about people's names. So usually when you're in a conversation, people start with, oh, I'm not good with the names, that guy there and then that girl there. And so. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I try to, yeah. I try to be precise. I think yeah. it's, you know... I mean, we talk about closure, you know, valuing simplicity, and certainly yeah. that's a distinctive thing. And you know, Rich gave a great talk about it. But I think that yeah, yeah. Uh, that you know, valuing 
uh, kindness and respect is another yeah. thing that is very important in the closure community and that, that yeah. you know, we try to lead by example in the forums that we started, things like the, the yeah. mailing list. And I think that that's been a very important part of closure success is people being able to, you know, expect that they're going to be uh, treated with respect and kindness uh, in yeah. interactions. So I think I think that's another you know important thing. And I would I would close by mentioning because we should have mentioned this at some point that um, this is going to be um, the tenth conj this year. So this is going to be a, oh, an event yeah. of extreme splendiferousness. <laughs> and uh, I'm uh, I'm super excited about it. I think you know uh, it's going to be you know the the announcement's going to come out sometime in the next couple of weeks. I'm not sure how long between this recording and when when this publishes, but uh, yeah. maybe it'll even be out by the time uh, the podcast is out. Uh, I think I'm probably going to be doing a day long workshop on making Datomic awesome in the cloud. So Excellent. we didn't spend a lot of time talking about that today, but something that has been dominating my thoughts over the past year and I'm eager to get out and talk about it with other people. So uh, yeah. hopefully we'll see some people there. Uh, certainly hope I'll see the, both of you at Conj if it's possible. Um, we'll and uh, we, we could if be not, sponsors, okay? We'll have to find a way, but... Uh, that's right. Yes, we'll have to exactly. work that out. Yeah, yeah. That's right. As You're long as we get, we get press passes, we'll yeah, yeah. show up. <laughs> we'll talk about that yeah. off-air, Stu, okay? Great. Yeah. But um, I think it's um, on that on that um, bombshell uh, note. I think we can. Yeah. Well, I expected a bombshell, but uh, it was it was much more like a you know um, proper um, uh, proper way of uh, as you said you know closure community the community thing is is one thing that I really really like about closure the way people being kind to each other and then being good and then you know doing good so um, so thanks a lot for for joining the uh, joining the the podcast. Uh, it's it's almost one year and it's been an absolute pleasure for us to to talk to different people at Cognitech and different people in Closure World, yeah. and uh, we've been learning a lot talking to all these people. So this is something that uh, we really appreciate, and and um, it's been almost one and a half hour, and um, we'd like to wrap it up now. And um, thank you, uh, Stu uh, Stuart uh, Holloway. And I don't know if I can call you Stu. Is that okay? Stu is fine. Stuart is fine. Whatever. Perfect. <laughs> uh, Thanks again. And um, uh, we'd like to wrap up by uh, reading some credits. Um, so the music is by Pizzeri uh, as the, the intro music and the outro music. Uh, we might actually change so the music this time, you know. We, this is a bit post hoc, yeah. but we might change it for a special. Still made by him. Made, made by him, but a different track, maybe, to signify exactly. the, uh, the, the regal presence of Mr. Holloway. <laughs> oh, you're really embarrassing me now. <laughs> To, to, to honor this special episode with exactly, a special, exactly. uh, special number starting the episode. And uh, our artwork is done by Lubov Sultan and you, you find the, the links in the technical notes. And of course, as uh, uh, we'll, we'll add a lot of links that um, Stuart will um, uh, send us and in, in the show notes. And that's it from us for episode number 23. Uh, and this is Vijay signing off. Yeah, likewise, Ray. Thanks again, Stu. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. Thanks very much, guys. Have a great afternoon. Bye.